This is Movie Land with CJ Johnson. Hello and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. We don't normally associate Australia with cults. I think we think of America and Manson and Jim Jones and Scientology when we think of cults. But Australia has had its fair share, including a very spooky one called The Family. Now there is an award-winning feature documentary about The Family called The Family, currently screening in various parts of Australia and opening in Sydney on March 30th. Rosie Jones, writer, director and co-producer of The Family, has joined me on Movie Land. Hi, Rosie. Hi, CJ. So what brought you to the story of The Family? Tell us the story of The Family in a nutshell. Ooh, in a nutshell. That's tough. Um, Australia doesn't have too many, air quotes, cults, and, uh, but this is up there with being one of them. And it's certainly a very unusual cult, in Mm. quotes, uh, because it's led by a woman. Mm. And that was an important part of the story, this charismatic yoga teacher uh, who called herself Anne Hamilton. Uh, She started gathering groups of people around her because of her fantastic yoga skills, met a man who was uh, a very important person at Melbourne University, and then they, they got together and decided that they were going to create a cult. So they knowingly set out to do it in the same way that L. Ron Hubbard knowingly set out to create, you know, he famously said, create a religion and you'll be wealthy beyond belief. Like he knew what he was doing. She knew what they knew what they were doing. Yes. I think Raina Johnson. She didn't believe she was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. She did. Oh, she did. Oh, I think she believed it. Oh, okay. oh yes, I think she believed it. There was it. no cynicism there. Like, they, they believed no. it. Okay. Oh, I think she believed it. And I think Dr. Raina Johnson, who had already written half a dozen books about um, the, the conflagration, I guess, of science and religion, mm-hmm. he believed that she was Jesus Christ reincarnated in the female form. He sincerely believed that. He was given a bit of assistance by LSD, but... Right. Um, <laughs> He really believed that he had found his teacher or master and uh, that she was an avatar or she was Jesus Christ come down to save the world. She believed, or they both together believed, that there would be um, a catastrophe, an apocalypse, and that they wanted to raise this group of perfect children who would take over after uh, the apocalypse, and this was the master race, the children with the identical clothing, the dyed blonde hair, this perfect family of perfect specimens of children who would take over. Yes, if you don't know about the family and Anne Hamilton Byrne, you might have the images burnt into your brain of these children with this very similar dyed Blonde hair, I guess it's called peroxide blonde. It's that sort of white blonde that looks so unnatural. And the other place that this imagery comes from is a very famous British film from the 60s called Village of the Damned, which is hugely ironic that, you know, you've got a film about damned children called The Village of the Damned that shares the exact iconography of these kids in this rather idyllic Melbourne or Victoria bushland looking like the kids from The Village of the Damned. I wonder if that irony was ever... I mean, they must have... That, that was a big film. That is a famous film. And in the time of Anne Hamilton Byrne creating this thing, that film was only 10 or 15 years old. I wonder if she knew what she was doing with that. Look, I don't think she would have known that. I think what she had in her mind was the sound of music. Aryan. Yes, Aryan the race. Aryan ideal. And, and this sound of music because right. the kids with the blonde hair, they had this little uniform that they wore and they were actually a choir. 
Right. They went down to the Dandenong Festival and they sung songs together as this um, Aquinell College Choir and won prizes. So I think she was thinking, she's Julie Andrews of Sound of Music and here are her perfect little Von Trapps. Right. Was there a white supremacy thing going on as well? Ooh, an interesting question. Um at the time that this cult began in Melbourne University, it was quite a big place for eugenics. So I do think um, I do think there was an element of that. I don't think that was the major philosophy, but I think uh, amongst a lot of sort of academics at that time, there were ideas that the white race was just a little bit better than the others. Right. So uh, it, it wasn't major, but I think it was... And underneath, and Anne was an incredible ang- anglophile and snob. Right, right. Yes, the snob thing is is very interesting. Her obsession with appearance, and there are very telling moments. The film is the the heart and bleeding <clears throat> bleeding pulse of the film is made up of interviews with survivors from the sect, and um, which you call it a sect in the film. Um, and there's a very telling moment where one of them says, oh, God forbid, you know, she should be seen unraveled or something. That would have killed her. Like, of all the things in the world to annoy someone, the fact that they would possibly be perceived as being unkempt, but that was so important to her. These, these, this idea of appearance was so important to her. Absolutely, and I think it was through her appearance that she dragged herself out of what was quite a poverty-stricken childhood. So mm. I think she used her sexuality and her charisma. She was very voluptuous and blonde and, and a very attractive woman mm. with piercing blue eyes and this quite sexy sort of deep voice. That's what got her out of where she was and the sort of life that she might have led had she not had the good looks. She augmented them by copious amounts of plastic surgery. Right. So multiple plastic surgeries and later on in the film you see her with um, her hair seems to sprout from halfway back on her head. Yeah, freakily. Freakily and that's because she had so much plastic surgery. So (laughs) appearance was everything. All the children uh, up at Lake Hilden were brought up with a very cultivated English accent. They weren't to talk like Australians. They were to be English. Right. Um, she was. She made them speak in an English accent. Absolutely. That's oh, fascinating. Oh yes, they had to keep themselves incredibly clean. They were dressed in sort of little fifties clothes. Really, she had this image of spotless, clean, beautifully spoken, beautifully mannered, polite, very subdued children. Now I love documentaries about cults. There are many good ones about American cults, <laughs> the home of cults. But uh, you know, obviously, this is an Australian one, and. Obviously, I don't want to. I, I want to save as much revelation for the viewer as possible. So I don't want to ask too much about the actual subject itself. But I, I do need to ask a couple of questions. Um, one is, what do you think? I mean, yes, LSD involved. Yes, madness in the history, in the ge- genetic history of certainly of Anne. But how do you explain two adults coming together, believing that one of them is the reincarnation of? Of Jesus Christ? How did two people merge in that insanity? Well, in fact, he believed he was John the Baptist reincarnated. Okay. Right, All of okay. the sect members or the sort of inner core sect members believed they were famous people because, um, you know, there was Beethoven. One person was Beethoven and somebody else was, um, I think there was a Napoleon and everybody 
saw themselves as somebody really important from the past because reincarnation was a big part of the philosophy. Right. And but you've got to have a leader, don't you? It's her, right. really. You know, yeah. she has to give this idea to him, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes, she, she And did. he then kind of has to run with it. That's right. On some, on some weird oh, psychological th- way. They all ran with it. In yeah. fact, the... Um, the sect solicitor, Peter Kibbe, who who actually betrays yeah, yeah, yeah. and much later on wonderfully betrays her, yeah. he was known as Pontius Pilate. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so everybody had these terribly important historical figures as they're sort of in their mind as to who they were and what they were doing. So very, very bizarre. I mean, I, I really, I think that that was to do with LSD. Right, but, but but I think they sincerely believed that she was someone incredibly special, and what she somehow was able to do with the group was to make them all feel special, and that was incredibly important. They felt handpicked, they felt loved to begin with, um, they felt like they belonged to a group of really special, elite, intelligent people, and they were intelligent people. And this is the thing that boggles my mind. How did she get them? How I just don't quite understand how she this ha- happened that they were able to take control of all of these children. Um, are you asking about the actual adults or the children? Which I could t- tell you stories about either. I I, I, I guess the children, and and I guess also I guess it's to do with just how radically different. Even only the seventies and eighties are to now, in terms of laws and technology. I guess that's what I'm talking about. It it doesn't feel that like that long ago, but really, when you when you're seeing some of this stuff occur in the film, it feels like ancient history. Right. I guess that she came at a point in which it was the 1960s when uh, Rainer Johnson and Anne Hamilton Boone got together, uh-huh. and this is a time of seeking. It didn't matter what class or where you fitted in. A lot of people were looking for something apart from the 1950s sort right. of neat little family. So yeah. a lot of people were searching. Um, also, there was a lot of experimentation, as we all know, with, with sex. Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of illegitimate babies around. So it was a time when adoption just was enormous in Australia and very poorly regulated. So a lot of the members of the sect were professional people. So there were doctors, there were psychiatrists, there were nurses, there were social workers. All these people were inside the hospital system. Some of them highly respected, or most of them highly respected people in their own fields. And they were able to literally... um, coax a young woman with who was going to have a child out of wedlock to sign over adoption papers. The um, A sect doctor would deliver the baby, would hand the baby to a sect nurse. The sect nurse would hand the baby to a social worker. It would go to... The baby would then be given to a member of the sect who had been arranged by those people. Sometimes even within the hospital, that baby would be given by that cult member to Anne Hab- Hamilton Byrne herself be taken away. So sometimes the papers were signed by these sect members who mm. could sign the papers, but very dodgily, sometimes the papers weren't signed. A couple of babies were just literally stolen. Astonishing, astonishing. And you like to say it couldn't happen now, but of course there are always ways that things could happen now. <laughs> well, look, uh, the regulations are a lot uh, stronger now and partially because of what happened here. 
Um, at, at the time, I think there were just masses of little organisations dealing with adoption, right. um, whereas now there's only three or four, right. and it's, it, it is more highly regulated. Yeah. But, you know, it is shocking when you hear that, and more shocking, I guess, on the... Um, on the moral side, those people knew what they were doing is not the right thing, and they're, they're people in the caring professions. So, I mean, that's astounding. And, of course, the if, if our beating heart of the film is the interviews with the survivors, the sort of dramatic narrative thrust of the film is the police investigation. And when we look at the police investigation, everything just seems so antiquated. You know, we're talking about way pre-internet, but also really pre-DNA. And so the police investigation just seems so laborious and difficult and impossible compared to now when it seems like you could actually wrap this thing up in two seconds. Well, it's a bigger thing in, than you think. And as, once the police started investigating one way, it opens up into all these other things. So mm. you start going into the um, the psychiatric hospital because the sect owned a, uh, owned their own private psychiatric hospital where they recruited vulnerable members. But... You open up one area and it just keeps snowballing. So it actually was an enormous, um, as a researcher, I know how enormous it is. Um, And for the police, it would have been very hard to know which avenue to follow because there were so many things going on all at the same time. Mm. But yes, you're absolutely right. It was in the days when people were communicating by fax. Yeah. There wasn't an internet, really. Uh, there weren't. There were hardly computers. Mm. When the police uh, first started their investigation, they were put into this tiny room, the six of them. They had a few phone books, a couple of phones, a couple of filing cabinets, and thank you very much, that was it. So laborious. Get on with it. And your lead police character, your lead investigator? Lex Deman. It's astonishing to see a cop take all of this stuff on so personally. That's not something we see in the movies and television. We see, we we equate police officers with being stoic mm. and being, you know, I don't want to use the word brave because your character is super brave, but we equate them with being stoic. They don't break down and cry about their cases. And this guy does. And it it, it was his life. You know, if, if, if a life is made up of career and home, this was his career and this was his career and mm. it affected him in every single way. Well, that's absolutely right. And I mean, I was astounded by that because I haven't really, I can't say I've got a whole lot of police people as my friends. I've got and I, I expected them to be, you know, a bit, bit blokey and a bit sort of tough. But both, and a bit removed from A it, little yeah. bit removed, but both Lex Deman and, and Peter Spence, who was head of Operation Forest um, when it was first set up in 1989, both of them got so incredibly involved with the children and they felt incredibly responsible to do something, to do the right thing by these kids. Mm. Peter Spence tried to get a royal commission into this sect in the quite early days of Operation Forest and eventually, I mean, he, he put that forward to the hierarchy and it was knocked back. Right. So he was very, very frustrated because people from the sect or cult, whichever we want to call it, um, I want to call it a cult. I understand why you as a filmmaker have called it a sect because you wanted to give the the survivors some dignity. Mm, And and to make it a more neutral term. Yeah. But um, there was no way to force people in the sect cult Mm. um, to actually talk without a Royal Commission. So, for example, the police were not able to get Anne Hamilton Byrne to talk. She certainly wasn't going to volunteer and they couldn't force her. They couldn't force any of the inner members of the group to talk, whereas mm. a Royal Commission would have made that possible. So that was incredibly frustrating. So they mm. were sort of operating with their hands tied behind their backs in terms of not being able to get information from 
inner core members, and the, the motto of the sect was unseen, unheard, unknown. Mm. And that was exactly how they operated, under the radar. They didn't come out and, and you know, happily interview and, and talk to the public about what they were trying to do. They were not. They did it in a different, more stealthy way right. under the sort of, under the radar. So it was, um, for the police, it, it was heartbreaking, actually, because they got to know the kids. It takes a long time to take statements from people. Pe- mm. People don't realise that, but to, for example, with the lawyer Peter Kibbe, Lex Demand spent two and a half months taking his statement every mm. day. So you get to know that person and they become, you know, you can see them in all their roundedness as um, both perpetrators of wrong things, but also people who were the victims of Anne and who had reasons for joining the sect and reasons for behaving like they did. And, and you know, he was a lovely man. Mm. So and and also with the children, it took a very very long time to take these massive statements from them about what they'd been through up at Lake Hilden and also other other adults from the cult who agreed to talk. Mm. So you've got footage of these statements being given, and then of course you've got your own interviews, and some of those interviews are very very difficult because all of the survivors, as far as I can remember, as I say, I watched the film a few months ago, but all of those survivors show. They wear their damage. You know, you can see it on their faces. You can hear it in their voices. You can see it behind their eyes to varying degrees. Some of them come off more stable than others. A couple of them come off very, very, very unstable, as though they're they're on the verge of snapping in two. I have the privilege of interviewing filmmakers generally after they've made a film. Everyone's pretty happy. Everyone's relaxed as coffee. These must have been difficult interviews, I imagine, and delicate interviews. Look, they were very difficult for for myself and for um, producer Anna Grieve and for the crew. You know, mm. we did a week of interviews with um, not only the, the child survivors but also adult survivors, and it's it's full on. It's very intense. Um, people are anxious at first, and then I must say they relaxed and they were incredibly articulate. I mean... Yes, they're fragile, but I was so impressed by their strength. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be parents, to have their own children, to have survived, to be working, to be um, functioning, productive people, I think is extraordinary after what they went through because they had there was no love in their childhood. Mm. Their identities were stolen from them. Um, it takes an awful lot to then find out who you are. Mm. Once you're told, well, actually, no, you weren't born then. This is not your name. These are not your parents. Um, you are a blank slate, basically. Mm. There's one young man who I think you probably show the most of whose relationship to the whole thing is so complicated because there's there's protection, but there's also a desire for liberation. It's really, really tough stuff. And then there's uh, a, a young woman who's one of the surviving children who seems the most fragile and finds speaking the most difficult. And um, towards the end, uh, I, 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 this is not too much of a spoiler, she has a child. And I worry for that child, almost, in a way. There's a, there's a sense that this is a very, 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 very fragile person. Um, well, I think all of them are fragile. And yes, she she is fragile, but she's also incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, the process of the film, I think, has been very interesting because 
two or three of them, and actually the the people in particular that you're talking about, um, I think they are benefiting hugely from this process. Great. They are speaking out at Q and A's. They're, they're they're speaking out on television, on radio, and they're finding it really fabulous. It's oh, that wow. sort of um, narrative is healing process, mm. and yes, it's incredibly tough, but. I mean, I've got to say, I, I'm, I, I can't stop saying how impressed I am with yep. them because, you know, really, what a hell of a, hell of a background. Mm. Um, <laughs> yes. So, well, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's not a, it's not a sort of, I, I can't say that the trajectory for everybody is just, you know, straight up. It's yeah. a roller coaster and yeah. people have their ups and downs like everybody. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not unusual, but... I think they don't have necessarily have the support systems in a really solid family background, a loving family behind them. So that is really tough. And they've mm. had to find support groups around them, mm. which takes courage. So, yes, fragility, but um, I think there's a lot of good advice around them. The, the police, as you're talking about, um, the, the two men in the film, Lex Man and Peter Spence, they're always there. Amazing. Um, Mary Moore who was a journalist who first sort of broke open or was one of the first people to break open this case, she's there. That's amazing. So they've got people, um, some of the, the people in the cottages who first took care of them when they were brought out of Lake Eildon and had no idea what the real world was like, um, those people are still around them and care for them. So they've got a history, plus they um, they met their families they're mm. real biological families, um, mm. you know, with greater or lesser success. But they have got other people in their lives who keep them keep them going and keep them solid. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being a parent is difficult, but I, I think they're making a good go of it. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Absolutely. And it's, it's perhaps unfair of me to say what I said earlier in terms about that, uh, that child. It's just... You know, your the interviews. You know, these are relatively mid close up interviews of people, and you really do see, you see the you see the scars. I suppose now another interview subject that you have, it, it's astonishing. There's there's a person who you interview who is a current sect member, and it's just type on the screen that says current sect member, and it's like the idea that this is still going, and that this person is still advocating the party line seems almost. Uh, I mean, seems mind-boggling to me. He's a massive devotee. Anne Hamilton Byrne is now 96. She's mm -hmm. in a nursing home. She has just recently moved to palliative care. But Michael, this current cult member, he visits her every day. Right. He is devoted. He started in the sect when he was 19. Uh, and I guess that's his way of life. Yes. He, he has thoroughly imbibed that philosophy, if you like, that way of being, and nothing will dissuade Michael. Michael is, uh, look, uh, genuinely devoted to Anne. He loves her. He loves her philosophy. Uh, what can I say? Right. They, they no longer have any children that they're uh, looking after, Yeah. which is, I think, a very, very good thing. Um, of course. Yes, but uh, I would say there's a handful of maybe 20 to 30 people uh, who are still... Um, not necessarily hugely practicing in their devotion, but who still follow Anne, who still think she's done marvelous things. 
Right. It's hard to even get a grasp on what that philosophy is. You know, it's so in, intangible because <laughs> yeah. it's obviously, you know, when viewed from the outside, it's bonkers. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll let you go and we'll wrap up because I want people to see the movie and I don't want to over talk it. But I, I just want to probe your mind, your analysis of the situation, having gone through this process, because you've also written a book about it, also That's called right. The Family. Um you know, if we look at David Koresh and we see probably megalomania, if we look at Charlie Manson and we see, you know, deep mental illness, if we look at Jim Jones and look at some sort of kind of, I guess, megalomania, narcissism, you know, the idea to want to be a king of his own kingdom or whatever, you know, we, we do, however perverted, we do see motives within these people who lead cults. Um, L. Ron Hubbard, we know it was to make money. He said before he even created, he said, I'm going to get rich. He, he created Scientology to make money. We see motive. What was she getting? Uh, her motive seems to me to be to be difficult to ascribe. It's very difficult to know what her motive was because she has never really given an interview. Um, look, I, I think she genuinely believed that she was doing something good at the beginning and that she was Jesus Christ reborn as Anne Hamilton Byrne. Right. I think she genuinely believed that. But I to think give she, children LSD and to, I know, you know, all I know. these things that... Uh, look, she, I, I also think she had mental health problems. Mm -hmm. Her mother was mentally ill and died in an asylum. Um, I think that she had... Um, she was certainly a narcissist. I think she had absolutely no empathy for the people around her. Right. According to the stories that I've been told. Which is which, which is the language of sociopathy and That's right. e even um, mm. uh, psychopathy. Yeah, uh, well, look, it's really hard really to no. put a label on somebody that you haven't been able to really talk to. Yeah. So, and I'm not a psychologist. So, yeah. But clearly from her deeds and from the resulting... Um, damage done to many of her followers there was something really wrong going on there clearly um exactly why i don't know that she meant to do the wrong i think she just couldn't see right somehow and i think the reason that she wanted the children was um well i i've been told that she had a number of miscarriages uh and that when her first husband died in a car crash way back in 1955, she's, she's had three husbands, um, they were about to adopt a child right. from um, Bernardo's homes. Mm -hmm. So, And that was before the cult was even thought of. So I think that she had some sort of... And, and the fake pregnancies and so on, I think she had a deep need to have children, perhaps because her own childhood was not terribly happy um, but I don't know that because right. I haven't been able to ask her so yeah. I, I mean clearly she was motivated by power control money and greed and all the things that normally people are, are, are motivated by but I think there was another particularly feminine mm. element to this mm. because it is unusual to have um, a, a cult leader as a female cult leader mm. so anyway all these mysteries and all this enigma is available to you to see in the in the feature. Uh, it's called The Family. When is it uh, showing in Melbourne and then in Sydney? It's opening in Melbourne on the 23rd, February 23rd, which is yep. Thursday. And it's opening in Sydney on the 30th of March. March, terrific. And the book 
by Scribe Publications is yep. already out in bookstores. Fantastic. Rosie Jones has written the book and written, directed and co-produced the film The Family. Thank you so much, Rosie. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Movie Land. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at CJ Movie Land. Read and subscribe for free to my written reviews at filmmafia.com.au. Watch my web TV series, Watch This, at Skippy TV. That's S-K-I-P-I dot TV. S-K-I-P-I dot TV. And make sure you see a movie at the cinema this weekend. Take care.